Welcome to The Path to Exit, a podcast to help software and internet founders understand the process to raise capital or sell their business. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Mike Lyon, founder and managing director at VistaPoint Advisors, and this is The Path to Exit. This show is dedicated to helping founders of software and internet businesses understand what it takes to raise capital and sell their business and how to do it well. My guest today is Mike Greco, Managing Director of VistaPoint Advisors. Mike has worked in technology M&A for over 10 years and advised countless founders on M&A and capital raising events. In this episode, we discuss what a competitive process looks like, what it is, what it isn't, and how to leverage exclusivity as a negotiation tool. Please enjoy my discussion with Mike Greco. We're super excited today to talk to you about one of our favorite topics here at VistaPoint, which is how to run a competitive process. We spend a lot of time at the firm strategizing, arguing about how to make a process most competitive. And I think founders have a lot of misconceptions around what a competitive process looks like. So Mike, maybe to get us started, how do you think about a competitive process? What are the elements that make a process competitive versus not competitive? Absolutely. As you mentioned, one of the things that founders don't really have a good insight into given they haven't run these processes before. So things we hear a lot are, I'm getting a lot of inbound. I would say on average, our clients get anywhere between 50 to almost 100 emails a month around inbound interest. While that's certainly flattering and certainly you're hitting on the right data points, What that isn't is something that is going to move closer to a competitive process or something that is concrete. Another thing that we hear a lot from founders is that I have a term sheet on the table, had a lot of phone calls and a lot of interest around a specific subject or vertical and that that is what that company covers. What we find is a lot of investors and buyers do more blanketed outreach, really trying to educate themselves on the winners and losers and are willing to even put forth term sheets in many cases to then kind of suss that out over time. A great example of this is when you see an exclusivity provision that's 60 or 90 days long. That is certainly not something that is confirmatory in nature and more exploratory in terms of Do they want to do the deal or not? So things that we try to hit on is creating leverage and various points of competition and certainly not exuding any sort of leverage too early in that process. And so understanding buyers need to do a certain amount of diligence, making sure they hit certain milestones and are willing and able to uh, complete the transaction that they're ultimately embarking on. So I would say the easiest way to answer that question is, what isn't it? It's not just phone calls. It's not just emails. And it's not even, in many cases, a term sheet. It's those parties that are willing to close under a expedited time frame, have done the appropriate diligence, and honestly are able to work off of your timeline and not theirs. Yeah, I think you bring up some good points there. And one of the things founders struggle with the most in kind of understanding about M&A is the cost of doing it the wrong way. So diligence is painful in any process, right? A buyer is not going to give you a $100 million check without doing all of their key diligence. And where I think founders make the biggest mistake is rushing down the path with that inbound interest, right? So they maybe talk to a couple of PE firms, someone gives them a term sheet, And then it has 60 days of exclusivity. 
they get into the exclusivity period and they just get beat up with all the diligence requests. That's going to happen no matter what. But if they haven't done all their diligence up front, you have no idea if that deal is going to close or close on the same terms. So a lot of times you'll see a buyer try to take advantage of that situation where they're in 60 days of exclusivity, maybe try and retrade the deal at the end. Founder gets frustrated, stops the process, and then they're back to square one. But what they don't realize is all the things that they gave up during that time frame, right? They were really distracted from running the business. Maybe the business is underperforming. And so I think founders just move too fast sometimes. And by keeping the process competitive for longer, you can have multiple buyers do lots of diligence along the way and you're not committing to one. So maybe let's talk about that exclusivity provision. Why is it there? Why do buyers push for it? And why should founders be really leery about granting exclusivity too early? Absolutely. Exclusivity historically has been a great tool for buyers and investors to be able to do more of their expensive diligence. So this is legal diligence, quality of earnings, tax diligence, items that are in their LP agreements that they have to get done. And this is similar on the buyer side. It might not be external resources, but certainly internal resources. But that can be quite expensive for a buyer or investor to, to accomplish. So a lot of times they leverage to founders is they need this provision to unlock those opportunities. Certainly that is the case that it makes it more challenging for them. But what we're trying to do is close off what I would call deal risk scenarios that come up in diligence. Revenue recognition not being perfectly aligned things that are not necessarily business dynamics and things that would hinder the opportunity for that buyer investor long term, but more nuances that they can then leverage further on in the process. And so exclusivity for founders is honestly the least leverage they could possibly have. They're not talking to any buyers or investors or not allowed to. And when it comes to negotiating, you're essentially negotiating against a wall, right? They're not really willing to move. There's institutional knowledge or things that they have to abide by. And your only break point at that point to getting a deal point one in many cases is just breaking the deal altogether. And you identified like the risk that it takes to breaking one of these deals off, not just from an economic standpoint, but what happens to the company long term. But what we're trying to do is get buyers and investors to do as much diligence as we possibly can so that exclusivity period is very narrow and short and the scope and what they are exploring is very narrow so that it prohibits some of these things. And it might not be intentional, but more informative for the buyer and investor so that when they are putting forth those term sheets or opportunities for these founders, it's more concrete. Sometimes buyers and investors can get bad raps that they're doing this intentionally. A lot of times it might not be intentional, but they just don't know enough about the business to ultimately close that transaction. That aside, it also provides a lot of leverage for you to negotiate out terms that might not be market or things that you would want to underwrite. Yep. I think that's spot on. And when buyers are pitching exclusivity, they'll mention a lot of the things Mike just said. You know, They need it because diligence is expensive. Sometimes they'll say it makes the process quick and easy. Um, but really, the reason they want you to sign exclusivity is it really handicaps your ability to run a competitive process. By definition, you can only talk to that one buyer. 
So now it's a one-on-one negotiation instead of a one-on-five negotiation. And that's really what changes the dynamics. And what you typically see when you get into exclusivity, everything slows down as soon as you grant exclusivity. The buyer in general would like to do things in series. So they would like to do the least expensive diligence, then go into the more expensive diligence items, and then get to the purchase agreement and finalizing and closing the deal. When you're outside of exclusivity, you're really pushing them to do all those things in parallel, and you have the threat of the three, four, five, ten other buyers in the process that really gets them to pay attention, move quickly, and be more malleable. So for us, what we think of the perfect, most competitive process is we launch the process, we get NDA signed, we have quite a few buyers in the process. We provide maybe some access to management, and about a month into the process, we're getting first-round bids. And really, those first-round bids are not about picking a buyer, but picking who we want to spend more time with and who we don't want to spend time with. And then in that next month phase, that's really where we're asking buyers to complete a bunch of diligence. So ideally, they're spending 300 k to a $1 million on diligence. As Mike said, legal, accounting, tech, all the key diligence items that would change their mind on price. And then towards the end of that period, when we would ask them to submit a second round bid, in the most competitive processes we're running, we're giving them a purchase agreement that we ask them to mark up and submit with their second round bid. And if you get two, three, four, five buyers to do that, you now have basically two, three, four, five deals that you could close in the next few weeks. And so these buyers are fully committed. They've done all their work. They know exactly what they're buying. So their price is solid. And more importantly, they don't really have any leverage to try and change the price because of these other bidders. So that is the perfect competitive process. If you talk about the opposite end of that, which is a buyer gives you a term sheet, hasn't done that much diligence, you give them 60 days of exclusivity, that is the polar opposite of this. You have very little leverage. At best, you're going to get the deal done on the terms that you talked about in the term sheet, but it's going to take longer And you definitely run the risk of the buyer not understanding the business. So they have to retrade the deal or back out, or, you know, you're just handing them some leverage to negotiate with you later. So I think that's really how we think about the spectrum of competitive process. And I know we're talking a lot about exclusivity, but in some ways that's the negotiation behind the negotiation. If you give up on exclusivity early, you just handed them a lot more leverage. If you don't give them exclusivity, you maintain the leverage very late in the process. Any other elements we should talk about, Mike, in terms of what founders misperceive in terms of the competitive process, how leverage works? I guess one thing would be, what are the maximum points of leverage in a process? Like, how do you think about that? And when do you use leverage and not use leverage? Yeah, great question. And honestly, it goes hand in hand with the amount of diligence buyers and investors have done. If they've done very little, negotiating at that point is kind of futile, right? They don't know enough about the business. They can honestly agree to anything that you want. It's just subject to further diligence. And so what we find is a lot of founders would love to, even at that first round bid stage, start hyper negotiating specific terms. And what we find is that's probably the worst time to start negotiating, right? Everybody's in sell mode. Everybody is looking at the most positive elements of the business. But like any good business, there are some elements that need further diligence and further understanding. And so what we find is the best time is right before granting exclusive, if you were to grant exclusive. So as the buyer has more comfort of knowing the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, of an opportunity, 
and understanding how the founder ultimately wants to look at that transaction. One of the elements that we didn't touch on is the dual track looking at both buyers and investors in the same process, so looking at different types of terms. But if you don't have a well-thought-out understanding of how each buyer or each investor is thinking about that opportunity, you really don't know what to push on. There are certain elements that might be less important to you or more important to you as the process goes further on. But we find is the best point to start really negotiating is when that buyer and investor has done a good amount of diligence, if not all of their diligence. You, the seller, the founder, understands what type of deal structure and has a full menu of options in front of you to understand the pros and cons of each one of them. And then pushing on the deal terms that are most important to you, as opposed to pushing on all of them, knowing that you're not going to win every single deal point. And so understanding your wants and needs and having the buyer and investor appreciate every element of the business is arguably the best point to start that negotiation. I think you're right. And sometimes when the process gets really competitive, our clients just want to start using that leverage throughout the entire process because right. it is fun to use that leverage. But I think the way we think about it is, as Mike said, it's about educating the buyers. We're not talking to them about price when we first start talking to them about the business. It's about educating them, helping them understand the business. After the first round bids, there's definitely a leverage point there. We're making decisions about who we're keeping in, who we're kicking out. We're still really skeptical about the bids we received because they haven't done all their detailed diligence. They've done some diligence, but it will vary amongst buyers how much they've done at that point. So there's a little bit of a leverage point there in terms of who we're going to allow into the next round. So sometimes you might give folks an opportunity to rebid or come up to kind of make the cut. But I would say minor leverage point. As they work through all that diligence and they get to the end of the process, particularly if they've marked up a purchase agreement, this is where prematurely granting exclusivity could cost you 20 30% of purchase price, right? Because you can see some big moves towards the end. And as Mike said, the max point of leverage is right before you grant exclusivity, or in the case where you never grant exclusivity, it's really at the very end when you're picking, right? People are trying to win and prevail in the end. And so you create that kind of FOMO and you get everyone's best proposal. One thing we should talk a little bit about is if you do have to grant exclusivity, what are some of the do's and don'ts? So I'll give you some of the things we think about. If we do grant exclusivity, the first thing is we want them to have done as much diligence as possible. So ideally, legal, accounting, tech, and finance diligence should be done before you really think about giving someone exclusivity. Second thing would be keep the period short. I would say ideally two to three weeks. I would not really give someone 45 to 60 days. If they're asking for that, they're kind of signaling they want an option to do the deal and they're not sure, meaning they're going to be doing a lot more diligence to figure out if they want to do the transaction. If they're committed to doing it already, two to three weeks is more appropriate. And then I would set some time-based benchmarks in there so that if a buyer doesn't deliver or tries to change the terms, you can terminate exclusivity and move back to another buyer. And the reason why keeping that period so short is if, you know, the period of exclusivity is two weeks and you reach the end of that, there's a good chance one of your other buyers is going to be there and ready to close. If you're two months into exclusivity and then you terminate, there's a good chance those buyers have moved on to other deals or have just moved on in general. So there's a lot of risk in granting that exclusivity. And the more competition you have, the less excited you are about granting exclusivity because now you're putting all of your eggs in one basket. 
Anything you would add to that? No, I think you you nailed it. Well, thanks everyone for listening. What we talked about here is really what a competitive process is and isn't. It isn't that inbound interest where they seem really excited. It's really more of what we would call qualified interest. So they've done a bunch of work. They've done a bunch of diligence. They've spent a bunch of outside money on outside advisors. We talked a little bit about why you want to stay out of exclusivity if you can. And then finally, if you are entering exclusivity, how do you deal with that? How do you think about the time frame that's appropriate and some of the benchmarks and protections that you have? Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Vistapoint Advisors is a founder-focused investment bank that advises software and internet founders through M&A and capital raise transactions. We are a fully unconflicted investment bank who only works for founders on the sell side, so you know that we're always representing your best interests. Securities offered through Vistapoint Advisors, member FINRA, CIPIC. This has been provided for informational purposes only. It is not intended to address all circumstances that might arise. Testimonials from past clients may not be representative of the experience of other clients, and there is no guarantee of future performance or success. Clients are not compensated for their comments. If you have any questions about the process of selling your business or raising capital, reach out to a member of our team, or check out the Four Founders section of our site by visiting fourfounders.guide.